And the motion picture is the most important art film ever devised by the human race. It is the, the art form that creates more empathy than any other. It creates our ability to step out of our own shoes. Welcome to The Great Movies Pod, a retrospective film review show, the podcast where we watch and discuss each of the films covered in Roger Ebert's seminal film essay collection, The Great Movies. I'm Jana Gardner. I'm Nick Fulton. And I'm Dylan Cuellar. This week, we are going to be discussing the film Eight and a Half, the Italian title, Otto e Mezzo. Eight and a Half is a 1963 Italian surrealist comedy film directed by Federico Fellini and co-scripted by Fellini, Tullio Pinelli, Ennio Flaiano, and Brunello Rondi. It stars Marcello Mastroianni, yeah? Sure. Uh, as Guido Anselmi, a famous Italian direct film director who suffers from stifled creativity as he attempts to direct an epic science fiction film. Eight and a Half was a pretty big deal in its day. It won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film and Best Costume Design, Black and White Division. Um, and it's had all kinds of recognition among the top 10 on BFI's Top 50 Greatest Films of All Time. And it's also listed on the Vatican's compilation of the 45 best films made before 1995, commemorating the 100th um, anniversary of cinema. So, eight and a half, kind of big, important film. It's also um, in the Roger Ebert what did you book. Guys also, uh, the third film in Roger Ebert's uh, mm-hmm. great films essay book. So what did you guys come into this most recent viewing of Eight and a Half? Had you seen it before? When had you seen it? What was your experience? So I'd seen it a couple times. I saw it um, once when I was in college and then once maybe a few years ago, like some sometime after the Sight and Sound list came out because I was kind of like re-watching or watching for the first time some of those. And I, I really liked this movie um, both of those times. Uh, I remember being really kind of bewildered and puzzled by it. So I was really looking forward into um, kind of diving into those elements again and seeing if I could discover new things about the story of this uh, director who I think is a thinly veiled, um, not foil, what representation of uh, Federico Fellini himself. So that was kind of what I was going into this i had high expectations and uh i'm looking forward into getting into it with you guys what about you dylan uh for me um i don't remember when i saw this movie for the first time it was probably probably in like eighth or ninth grade and it was i believe it was the first fellini film i saw and um i thought it was gorgeous and very well made and i didn't care about anything that happened um so yeah that's kind of what i would came in to this viewing with was just um i remember looking great um some of the major scenes and then just seeing how i would react to the story this time because i didn't have much of a reaction to it last time fair enough uh so my first attempt at watching this movie was about a year ago um when i first got the criterion channel this was the first movie that i was like i am gonna watch this on the criterion channel and we put it on one evening, made it about 90 minutes in, saw that there was another hour left to go of the movie and was like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> not watching any more of this. And I abandoned it. Um, so going back this time, started over at the beginning um, and, you know, made it all the way through this time and had a somewhat similar 
reaction of being blown away by the visuals and by a lot of um, what I was seeing on screen and what he was doing, um, but similarly had a hard time engaging with the story. But yeah, so I this was my first time seeing it all the way through. Um, and yeah, um, I'm excited to talk about it as well. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say up top before we got into sort of our more detailed was I had pulled here the, the summary from the Criterion channel of what it says about the movie, um, which is that Marcello Mastroianni plays Guido Anselmi, a director whose new project is collapsing around him along with his life. One of the greatest films about film ever made, and we can talk about whether we think that's true or not, Fellini's Eight and a Half turns one man's artistic crisis into a grand epic of the cinema. And then it also says an early working title for Eight and a Half was The Beautiful Confusion. And Fellini's masterpiece is exactly that, a shimmering dream, a circus, and a magic act. Um, what, do you, do you, what do you think? Do you think The Beautiful Confusion would be a better or worse name for this movie than Eight and a Half? Yes, I think it would be a better name. Yes. Yeah. The, the movie yeah, is it, meta enough already before it even gets to actually calling itself Eight and a Half because it's Fellini's yeah. Eight and a Half movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's meta meta from minute one. Um, so, yeah, let's um, – did you have any other sort of overall thoughts that you wanted to get off your chest up top? Or do you want to start going – trying to make our way through this movie as much as you can on a plot-by-plot um, plot basis? I guess – up front, I would say uh, the film kind of lacks a central conflict of a philosophical premise, uh, which turns the film into like a series of gratuitous episodes, which some are amusing due to their ambiguous realism. One wonders what the author's point is to make us think, to scare us. I'm literally just reading what the critic says about Fle- uh, the main character's <laughs> notes at the beginning of the, the film, honestly, right now, but... I just thought you know. I, no, he was. It goes to show he he had a uh, he had some self reflexiveness maybe yeah. about uh, what he was attempting to do here. Uh, I just remember when I started at this time. Um, my brother watched the first ten minutes of the movie and the last ten minutes of the movie with me because he had a homework to do. Um, <laughs> and when we were watching it, and this guy started this whole quote about like how. Um, ambiguous it is and how um, what's the point what what is the author trying to say it's um, and the very end of it it says something interesting where it has the merits of an avant-garde film while possessing all of its shortcomings um, my brother turned to me at that point and said well this isn't a work of subtlety and <laughs> I think that's going to be my overall thought on the movie <laughs> up front that's something that I hate in movies that they do. Um, and I think the worst um, case of this that I've seen is in Birdman, where oh, the oh critic God. is just like a vile person. And it's preemptively like attacking any criticism that the movie may have, making it seem as if, mm. oh, I know you're going to say this, and therefore your point is invalid. I don't think that's true. Like, y- you could have had somebody at the beat like halfway through sallow be like oh and critics will say this is gross well that doesn't mean it's not gross <laughs> right. so i th- it is kind it is kind of funny that he does that in a way but it does take me out of it more than like really anything else that i can think of it it, it really bothers me when people do that 
Can I quote from your um, letterbox review, Dylan? If I, if oh, I yeah. start off the episode <laughs> with yeah, this. Yeah, sure. So uh, this is on Letterbox, Dylan. Um, you quote that uh, film critic, and then you say, "Okay, but honestly, it's an incredibly well-made movie, exceptional lead performance, but I had no emotional attachment to the characters of the plot, which sadly kept me at a bit of a distance from truly becoming involved with the film." One positive from that is, however, that the film is at least meta concerning these problems at the end of it. Does that help the problem? Yes. Does it solve the problem for it to become a masterpiece? No. Dot, dot, dot. And that's the end of the review. So <laughs> I think you're anticipating us getting into it. And Dylan, got to say, you nailed it. Yes. <laughs> I, to- I, I totally agree with you. I was the craft of this movie and we'll get into the nitty gritty oh it's incredible i think is terrific yeah and i think it'll be a cool movie to talk about because there's so many interesting things to say but sure i i felt that it was an intellectual exercise that didn't really move Mm. me almost at all (laughs) yeah there's not really at least I didn't experience much to latch on to. And I think your enjoyment of the movie depends yep. on how important that is to you. Like mm-hmm. how much, you know, can you sort of think a movie is one of the greatest films of all time uh, based on just sheer craft and ambition alone? Or does there have to be some emotional resonance there on some level yeah and um i was gonna save these quotes for the um end of the movie from ebert's review but i think given what we're talking about right now i want to throw them in the first one is um that uh fellini himself mentioned at one point that this film was an exercise of stylistic tendency over images or is that it yeah, stylistic stylistic tendency. I'm ideas, sorry. Ideas yeah, over stylistic ideas. tendency to emphasize images over ideas. Um, and I think to Ebert, because he says in response to that, I celebrate it. Um, this that could be something that works for you. To me, I I need at least some sort of idea or um, care or something to attach to. I don't like. I, in something Nick mentioned on the last podcast, like it's annoying when a character is like a hundred percent good unless they're named Paddington and a bear. Um, but I need something to like character to look at and re- either relate to or care for or hate even. And this film gave me none of that. And the other quote, and th- at some point in the movie, I had to almost just say. You know what? Guido is kind of he's got his like personal faults. He um isn't an outrightly hateable person though. And so I was I was just kind of thinking he's just sort of an abstract image of Fellini himself and not any sort of glorification or like um deterioration of the character in and of himself, but Ebert thought very differently because he mentioned specifically at one point Guido, our hero, such and such and such and such. So I want to ask you guys before we start, did you see Guido as a hero? No, I mean, he's the protagonist, right? Like in the sort of literary sense, he is the character whose journey we're following and he's trying to accomplish something. I don't think there's much sort of heroic about him. I wasn't rooting for him in particular. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think maybe that was one of my struggles is 
I wasn't I, I wanted to be rooting for him I wanted to be like you know I hope he makes a great movie and it's not really about that and so they're just there wasn't really anything to root for. Not he's, he's not like an evil guy or anything. Yeah. He's just, you know. <laughs> a, a hero is not a word I would have chosen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think he means hero in right. the literal sense that we think of like Indiana Jones as a hero. He means, you know, the like protagonist. protagonist. How, yeah. Yeah, you might say <laughs> that Travis Bickle is the hero or something like that. You I, With that one, you probably wouldn't go that far just because it would make you look like a psychopath. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't think he means that he's literally heroic. It's it's just like our way into this universe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of, like, I, I agree with what Ebert is saying about um, how images over ideas is important i think in cinema like his point is that it's part of the medium like it's not a play or a novel or something Mm -hmm. like that but i would say that this movie is not the best example of it this movie's mostly ideas there like this movie's chock full of ideas granted there's beautiful imagery too but if if there was like a scale of images versus ideas i would say that this is idea heavy rather than image heavy Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, too. I think I think it's filled with ideas. Um, I don't know that I understood all mm. of them or was sure that they were super cohesive. <laughs> kind of like, Dylan, what you were saying at the beginning, that it's more like a sort of just a bunch of – it's very episodic. It's a bunch of different scenes stuck together, and so I think it's a bunch of different ideas that are sometimes warring with one another. Um, but, yeah, I don't think it's lacking for ideas. I just think whether I can connect with them or feel like I – really took something away from them in a meaningful sense is more of my problem. Mm-hmm. So on the, on the character front, though, speaking of Guido and whether you liked him, were there any characters no. you liked in the movie? Like, did you have? I, I had a favorite character. You didn't have. There's no favorite character for you I, in the I, movie? I, I want to say there's probably a difference between a favorite character and a character you care about. Okay. F- I mean, fair enough. Who would you say your favorite character was? I love the Louisa character. I think she's so interesting, and I think um, I, f- I forget the actress's name, but she's also in La Dolce Vita. I think she's a terrific actress. I really wish that there was more of her in this. I th- think like that, um, the contradiction between someone who still seems to love her husband but also know that he's terrible um, mm-hmm. is really interesting, uh, and I think it's more interesting than most of what Guido's bringing to the table. Uh, with some exceptions that we'll get hey, to. But you can copy about, and paste Nick's uh, statement for me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Nice. Are we uh, going to agree I, too I'm, much in this episode? Cause I was going to say, we need to agree the I think whole we were time. Plan- <laughs> I came I in fifty cups ready. I think anticipation that we were going to throw down, but... I know. I, I, that's why I was like, when we were talking off air, I'm like, I want to save all, save some of this stuff for the show because <laughs> I don't want to agree too much beforehand and just have this be a 20 minute long episode where we're like yeah well i will say i'm not going to get into it right now um because we have too much else to talk about but if you want more of the wife character and their relationship that is one of the major plot differences in nine in the musical adaptation is like it really explores their relationship Mm. more and it's more focused on her her point of view and like invested in them their marriage uh, don't watch nine, but that is one thing <laughs> that it does better. I think um, if you my... want that, watch Knights of Cabaria. That's my favorite Fellini film, and I think that has a more thoughtful, um, interesting, and impactful story that could be the wife's story in this almost if the film had more care 
in it. Yeah. I don't want to hurt yeah. this movie too much. But. <laughs> I will say, I do agree with you guys. I think the wife, uh, Louisa, right, uh, yeah. is probably the best character. Um, mm-hmm. My sort of favorite character, though, is her best friend that shows up with oh, her. Oh, yeah, she's uh, I just thought she had, a, she had a real cool look, mm-hmm. a real good attitude. <laughs> I just, I liked her whole vibe. I thought she was fun. Uh, so she was my favorite character. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. Um, let's talk a little bit about what happens in this movie or what we think happens in this movie. Uh, it starts off. I mean, it definitely does not start off holding your hand, right? Like it, it jump, it dumps you in right away to one of his sort of confusing vision dreams, um, or he's just, you know, this man and you can't even see his face is stuck in this traffic jam, and people are staring at him, and he can't get out of the car, and then he eventually escapes and makes his way out to, you know, find himself flying into the sky, only to be drawn back down to earth by what we find out are his very annoying um, (laughs) collaborators and people who actually expect him to do his job and make a movie. Um, And so there's a lot of, I mean, there's so much striking imagery uh, from, you know, minute one of all the people in the traffic and then him on top of the car and in the sky. Um, You know, I, I think that was very impactful for me right away to set the tone of, oh, okay, like this is not going to be <laughs> sort of a nice, easy narrative story for me to figure out what on earth is going on. Because I don't even think I really understood until later on, oh, okay, this is all just a metaphor for, you know, his, it's all a metaphor for his emotional mm-hmm. struggle and how cursed he feels, I guess, to have to keep making movies. <laughs> Did you guys like that? Did you like the sort yeah, of I really opening love- abstractness? Yeah, I love the way this movie opens, actually. Um, Just the surrealist tone. Like, even within the first, I don't know, like 10 seconds of the movie, you already know that you're in a dream somehow. Mm -hmm. Um, Just, like, with the sound design, like, the lack of external sound and really all you hear is, like, Guido breathing and Mm -hmm. struggling. And also the way the, um, the scenes sometimes, as he pans, he'll freeze for just a split second so it's a little bit jarring so i like the way you it unsettles you and um i don't know i think it's a really iconic uh, image of like both the traffic jam and then him as kind of like this kite or whatever that's mm-hmm. floating above the beach i think both of those are like such famous images it's it's like what i think of when i think of eight and a half um mm-hmm. do you guys remember the song everybody hurts by rem Yes. Is is that a no, Dylan? Is that a no? R.E.M. was a band in the 90s. I know (laughs) R.E.M. Oh, God. Yeah, their music video to this was was like that. It was based off the traffic jam scene from from the beginning of this. Oh, I never would have known that. That's so cool. It's very Guido sounding. Everybody Everybody hurts. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so it goes straight from that dream to our setting, which is this sort of spa medical treatment like medical treatment in quotes facility uh where he's there i guess to deal with his stress or whatever other unnamed ailment he's dealing with and the doctors prescribe for him to do things like have holy water administered to him to uh treat whatever his problem is uh but he can't even relax there because that's the first time like we were talking about when the uh his you know critic collaborator guy comes in and just immediately starts being a real jerk about uh the movie and guido's script so you can tell from minute one that he basically 
does not have any rest. Um, but I do like both that scene, I think, is kind of funny. And I don't know if it's supposed to be, because I don't know enough about the time. Like, is it supposed to be kind of laughable that he's at this spa and sort of going to be prescribed holy water? Or are we supposed to take that seriously? I don't know enough to know if Fellini was sort of acknowledging that that's kind of ridiculous. I feel like it's supposed to be a joke. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit, but I do know that like as he was filming this, he was doing it with the intention of making it a comedy or right. um, there, there was something about how he would leave a note under the viewfinder of the camera that said, remember, this is a comedic film or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Yeah, I heard. I read that, too. I feel like at least the holy water part has to be played mm-hmm. as a comedy. The spa. I don't know. I mean, the spa is pretty is. funny, well, though. especially because right then in the next, you know, sequence. Uh, after there's the opening scene in the room, I I really like the next sort of big sequence when he goes outside and everyone's sort of parading around getting their water administered and it's all these like yeah. ritual ladies and it's all and the, the big orchestral music kicks up. Um, I, I really like the use of music in this movie and how, you know, you'll... Oh, God, they all played the hits, all, all the hits. <laughs> every song I ever heard in a Bugs Bunny <laughs> cartoon is also in this movie, so... <laughs> Yes. That's my main <laughs> reference point. <laughs> I w- in my notes, in my notes, I have written Killed a Web at mm-hmm. Opera Music. It really is. <laughs> it, it's, it's just Which, all. Th- uh, this, and this came out after What's Opera Doc. So is it a purposeful oh. allusion to Bugs Bunny? I'd like to think that it is. Oh, that's fine. I, I would like it so much I, more if that's true. I think it's more of an allusion to at least that song is uh, The Ride of the Valkyries is written by Wagner, who is a notorious narcissist <laughs> and um, complete asshole of a composer and creator of music. Very highly romantic and bombastic. And frankly, I absolutely despise most of the Wagner pieces I know of. And <laughs> I think even though I dislike that song a lot, it fits very well with this tone of a uh, narcissistic kind of asshole director mm-hmm. at least so i found that sort of illusion humorous yeah i like that on that level too um and yeah it just sort of gives that scene that extra bit of like you said kind of winking energy where i do think we're supposed to be rolling our eyes at at all of these people uh going through all of this i hope <laughs> yes, so i hope so too um yeah so then yeah it's kind of like I said, it's kind of hard to really describe I guess what happens plot by plot he starts we start meeting more of his friends and the other characters his one friend shows up with like a really attractive younger woman and it I know and it's uh. <laughs> it sort of just begins to introduce like the role I mean you sort of from minute one the role that women are going to be playing in this movie is uh really something uh-huh. so you go, um straight from meeting her to you know then he's going to go to the train station and meet Carla um, his mistress, who is coming into town. Um. Well, bef- <laughs> Before that, he meets the most perfect uh, well, woman. Yes, he has the a ideal woman of, uh, his, of the most ideal yeah. woman. Exactly, who um, he'll he'll see throughout the movie, um, you know, and he'll in these visions where she's perfect, and then he'll kind of blink, and she's not there, or it's somebody else. And yeah, that does start in the the water scene as well. It's some quote-unquote older, less attractive, less interesting, less inspirational female for him to gaze upon. Yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, we get very quick succession uh, the the young women that are going to be populating his <laughs> his story here. Oh, I was going to say, I love the way that uh, Claudia Cardinale is introduced mm-hmm. in this scene where she's all in white, and then it, it's kind of like, I think she's even like raising her arms, mm-hmm. and it pans <laughs> as if, it, it pans and you just see her like from uh, like the chest up, and you, it like, since you can't see your feet, it looks like she's floating as she's moving yeah. around, and it's uh, it's just a such such a great introduction to this character who isn't really real as he's imagining her to be right mm-hmm. i mean and she is really beautiful and and they fellini shoots her in i think exactly like you're saying a way to give that sense of too good to be true too good to be real like there's this sort of otherworldly mm-hmm. not even if you know it's he sort of goes in and out of visions and things every time he sees her you have that sense of not of this earth kind of quality about her. So I, I agree. I do like that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, after that happens, that's when he goes to the train station and we meet Carla for the first time, his mistress, who he doesn't seem all that fond of. It seems like an awful lot of work to deal with this mistress who he just does not like really have much, you know, interest in keeping her around and yet he does i guess for the attention or because he just can't help himself <laughs> what did you guys think of uh, carla showing up with all of her suitcases yeah i, I love the hat that <laughs> it's she's a good wearing hat. she has oh it's the best she has the most ostentatious hat yeah I, I like how she's introduced too where he stops at the train station and for a second you think that she didn't show and he's like oh good <laughs> and then she does show and he looks so he looks so upset and you're like why is he even? Why bothering? are you doing this then? If yeah. He, if he doesn't, he doesn't like her. She's clearly made to look like far intellectually inferior to uh-huh. him. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think she like talks about reading comic books or so. She she's alluding to reading Donald Duck, which apparently <laughs> he was in comic books or something like that. Sure. Yeah. And they just seem like the the most poor the most poorly matched pair. Mm-hmm. Um. So, so it does like raise the question: Why is he even bothering? But then, when you meet um, Louisa, they're like the polar opposites, mm-hmm. and I feel like that, n- like not just their personalities, but the look. Like it's a blonde and a brunette, and Louisa is typically wearing all white, and um, Carla's wearing mostly black, uh, at least in the introduction scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you guys, by any chance, mm-hmm. watch the um, the bonus feature on Criterion? With the uh, interview from Sandra Milo, who's the actress who plays Carla. No, no. No. It's really interesting. Um, I don't know when the interview was conducted, but it, it was after um, Fellini had passed away. But she was his mistress. They met on. They met for this film, and she was his mistress on and off for about 17 years. Wow. And it's a, it's a really fascinating um, portrayal of kind of the the guy that Fellini was and it is not surprising at all if you've seen eight and a half yeah <laughs> this movie's too meta <laughs> on every level yeah no she's definitely made up to look you know look kind of cheap look yeah less sophisticated and then they speaking of the contrast with her versus like being the opposite of his wife then it really leans into it when they do go back to the hotel room and he basically wants to role play with her like being a prostitute and so he really wants to make it 
to show that this is not, you know, this is like the opposite of his relationship with his wife. This is, you know, very sexual, very, um, you know, just on, I don't want to say trashy necessarily, but sort of on that trashier end. It yeah, feels a and he's little like, trashy. Doing, you know, like doing the, she you know, has these terrible eyebrows and then he's putting other terrible eyebrows on her and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the movie's not super nice uh, to her. I know, and for a movie in which he says, like, I'm trying to remember the quotes exactly, but he says something like how hard it is to want to tell the truth when the truth is going to hurt someone, or, like, he mentions, like, how much he loves and cares about his wife, but, like, it's just not enough, and because he's not a good person, he, like goes off with prostitutes and it's just like, oh, then I do not care mm-hmm. at all about you or the situation. And the other sad thing is they really relegate Carla to just kind of being a joke for most of it. But I actually think mm-hmm. she has maybe the best personality of any of the characters in mm-hmm. the movie. Like she's like electric when she's on screen and she's funny without being like pretentious or meta. And it just, it just gets diluted down in like these, base ideas that I feel like Fellini was leaning into instead of any sort of piece of substance or multi-dimensional thinking but yeah that was a bit of a I disappointment. I think the generous interpretation would be to say that he was really like leaning into archetypes maybe you know like knowingly doing like cool. the Madonna whore kind of dichotomy and then I mean Later on, we'll get into all the various other women and the roles they play. But yeah, that that would, to me would be the generous interpretation. It was just that he, you know, had these big ideas, and like we were saying, nothing is in the film is subtle, uh, and at the very, at the very least, not her characterization. Yeah, I do like the scene where they're in, where they're like role playing in the hotel room, um, for two reasons. When he does her makeup, mm-hmm. uh, it's. I feel like it's supposed to invoke the way the Saragina has her makeup mm-hmm. done. Oh, like totally. The has the angular eyebrows, yeah. Yeah. And then, like, when he's telling her how to role play, it's like he's directing her. And it reminded me of um, Vertigo when when Jimmy uh, Stewart's character is trying to get uh, uh, Kim Novak's character to play a different version of herself mm-hmm. um i don't know if that was a purposeful homage or not but it, it at least reminded me of you know it's two care two men uh, acting in similarly abhorrent ways i feel like in vertigo though it's at least like that scene is kind of terrifying almost and very suspenseful and then this one in eight and a half is just like oh look they're being a prostitute and he's directing yeah. her yeah, I mean, it does it does tie in, like you're saying, with, you know, with the Saragina thing and obviously his, you know, being in control of everything. Yeah, that was yeah. an interesting note. That, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, right after this, too, is when he has his next dream uh, of the many dreams he has. This is the one with his parents, where he's, like, walking through the graves, like, but talking to his parents about the graves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, has some mother-wife kind of transference there as well. Um, you know, he's, he's got a lot of, a lot of issues, <laughs> our Guido here. Um, 
So that that one, there wasn't any sort of like crazy imagery in that particular dream, but I did like the, you know, I thought the interactions like with his dad was kind of funny. Well, the dad going into like the mm-hmm. ground was pretty yeah. cool looking, yeah. especially because like it looks like he's just kind of like going behind a rock, but then when he's completely gone, it's just mm-hmm. sand. It, it it was just it was very strange looking. I I really liked the way he kind of disappeared from the frame. And that's the scene where we intro- were introduced to Louisa. Mm-hmm. It's like a yeah. kind of a smash cut where he, his mom kisses him in like a weird Freudian way, and then he he blinks or whatever, and it becomes Louisa. Yeah. They never explore his relationship with his mother really at all, and I don't understand like what that scene, what like what is that supposed to mean? Does it mean anything, or is it just like a Freudian nod? I, I that just think doesn't the- really have any deeper meaning. I think there's a Freudian thing, just for the reason, like you were saying, it's not like we get any sort of revelation or, or more explanation later of his relationship with his mother in particular, but just that sort of, yeah, Freudian, uh, his, you know, mom and wife and women and, you know, I don't think there was too much more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Now, Carl Jung was a contemporary of Freud, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, because... Um, We'll get to this, but um, the Asa Nisi Masa thing was related to Carl oh. Jung. So maybe instead of being a the Freudian Jungian. thing, the mom kiss, could it be more of a Jungian? Well, Jung's the co- collective unconscious and, you know, dreams and things like that, right? So that that makes sense based on, you know, I don't know. Mm. Okay. He wasn't as, as obsessed as Freud with, uh, <laughs> like, parents and Oedipus Oedipus complexes and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. I don't even remember what happens after that. He goes around. He does a dance in a hallway. Yeah. Runs around the hotel um, some more. Um, Which that the dance he does in the hallway. I love that shot. That's like such a fun shot. And I wish there was more shots of sort of like the whimsy or the charismatic nature mm-hmm. of guido um i feel like that can be a tiktok dance as well <laughs> what he does in the hallway yeah i definitely like the whimsical element we'll talk about it obviously but i i, I really love the end of this movie and i it's because it's because of that similar sort of you know just <laughs> just have fun with it just be you know lighthearted and and that kind of energy uh, really worked on me when that mm-hmm. happens in the movie. I'm still trying to remember what happens next. Oh, um, yeah. So we're actually almost to the uh, mind reading out at the um, dinner party situation and everyone's running around and he's still talking to more of his collaborators. And this is where there is the magician and the magician's um, assistant who can do this mind reading trick. And we see it first with going through a lady's handbag and he's pulling items out of the handbag and the assistant who's not looking can identify down to extreme detail what's in all of the bags. I spent that entire scene like, hey, well, how would you fake this? Like, what, what is the secret? I was thinking I, that I, too. I'm no good with magic because that's all I'm ever trying to figure out. Um, but then when it gets to the, the Asa Nisi Masa part, I get the sense that we're not supposed to think it's fake, like that that this magician's for real, yeah. right? Yeah, because how else could he have yeah. known that? Right. Yeah, there's, yeah, th- at that point, it's like, oh, okay, so magic is real here, I guess. I, I really like that uh, 
magician character, though. It's like a very oh yeah, uh, like cabaret MC kind of look and energy about him. Uh, I liked that mm-hmm. part a lot. Yeah, he could be a top yeah. character for me too. <laughs> it's true. I didn't think about him when we were talking about good characters. He's really good. Um, yeah. So. I, I really I really like that scene on the whole um, from the I, I really love also I like all the shots of them mm-hmm. dancing I can tell uh, I like this like I mentioned I like the shot of him dancing through the hallway but I also like when um, the 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 older guy who's dating the younger mm-hmm. woman um, what's the older guy's relationship to Guido is he a producer I can't remember do you know Nick uh, yeah, I don't. I they may have just been friends. I don't even know if he's actually working on the film yeah, with them or not. But the movie doesn't. Yeah, the movie doesn't really seem to care that much about like the specific roles that. <laughs> and neither did I. Play. Yeah, except for the actors that keep yelling at him for roles and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but I like I love the shot where he's dancing with the, his younger girlfriend, and it's this like wide shot of him, and he's like dancing in the very bright almost like a spotlight looking thing and it just like slowly him getting towards the camera and he's like all sweaty and gross and stuff and he's got this like shit faced expression on him i i just that 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 was a fun shot and um i i liked a lot of that stuff going on and then the magician part was awesome and i i I love the awesome nisi masa phrase it just sounds so cool so we haven't talked about it yet um but i just remember it particularly during this scene, um, the audio, the way audio is handled in this film with the dialogue and everything, we talked a little bit uh, off mic about it, but apparently it was very common uh, for Italian films of this time period to be filmed without sound at all. Um, just to be filmed and people could say whatever they want, they could speak whatever language, they could be reading lines or not, and then everything would be dubbed in later. Um, which was some this was more distracting to me than not in some scenes. It really depended on the individual scene. It was really distracting at first until I like literally Googled it to make sure it wasn't just my like stream <laughs> being messed up. And so yeah, and so once I, I was like, oh, okay, this was just how the movie was made. That's fine. But then there in some like there's some scenes more than others where you can just tell you're like that person is not saying these words or that voice would not be coming out of that person's mouth. Um, Cause I think it's in this scene where there's some like American characters or, um, and it, I couldn't tell if they were speaking. It's like Italian with American accents. And then later when they're off camera, you can hear English phrases being said. Um, and so this was one of the scenes where I was like, oh, okay, he really uh, used that to sort of, I think mess with or at least expand his options for throwing in dialogue and things like that. Was that distracting for you guys? Did you know ahead of time or <laughs> yeah, no, I don't find that distracting. I mean, especially in foreign films where I'm spending so much time reading the subtitles, I like barely even notice. Um, yeah. But even like I watched rumble in the Bronx this week and I think the only thing that's widely available is an English dub and it's, it's absurd. Mm-hmm. So if I can get through that, this is this is nothing. This is high, yeah. the highest quality <laughs> dubbing work compared to something exact like version. The <laughs> exactly, and I mean, I, I grew up watching dubbed movies and like spaghetti westerns and stuff like uh-huh. that too, or even like mm-hmm. the old James Bond movies where half like half the characters are just completely overdubbed anyway. Um, so it 
Yeah, it didn't. Once I realized that it was just the style and the filmmaking technique, then it, for the most part, wasn't that distracting. After that, um, oh, oh, I was going to say, is this when he, oh, when, uh, so Asa Nisimasa, he has the flashback to his childhood. And at first I was like, oh, is he like in a group home or like an orphanage situation? But no, he had parents. And it just seemed like it's extended family, like it's him and all of his cousins and everything. Um, mm-hmm. And so we see them like being sort of like lovingly, um, shush, being lovingly um, sort of taken care of and having this sort of like rambunctious uh, interactions with each other. And that's where he, um, you know, first learns that phrase is from one of the other kids at the, in his big childhood family home there. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you guys take Asa Nisimasa as me- meaning to you? I mean, I don't, it's just total nonsense, right? Just cool sounding syllables, you think? I, I have no idea what it means. I don't know if it's supposed to mean anything. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I, I can. Mm. Did you have an interpretation or something that you thought maybe? Well, I looked it up. Oh, what does it mean? Uh, well, it mainly means just mumbled junk, like garbage. Um, <laughs> but it's almost a sort of pig Latin way of stating the Italian word anima, which means soul or um, something like that. And I guess it was also a term that uh, Carl Jung used quite a lot when describing mm. stuff. And so sure. sort of like in Pig Latin where you end like a word with a weird oh. sound, instead this one you end each syllable with a oh, different sure. sound. So asa, nisi, masa. Like anima, interesting. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I can, I can buy that. That's kind of cool. Or it could be mumbled garbage. <laughs> it's... Some of feels those. very eight and a half ish yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be like possibly deep or possibly yeah. garbage. Yeah. Um, but the Asinisimasa whole thing is probably my favorite part of the whole movie. Oh, I yeah. find it very interesting. Yeah, I like that sequence a lot. Um, right after that is when he, Guido, goes back and calls Luisa and makes the absolutely insane decision to invite her. <laughs> <laughs> to come see him, which I, I I think that seems really well acted. Like you really get the sense he you know he loves her. Um, he's got a lot of problems and does not know how to maintain a relationship. But he obviously misses her. Obviously loves her. And I think just you know he doesn't think things through, right? And so he wants her there. So he invites her to come there. Uh, without seemingly any thought of how he's going to handle the fact that he still has his mistress running around <laughs> town at the same time. Um, you know, because he'll figure that part out later. <laughs> he's like very insistent that she comes, and it seems like a clear mistake. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if he just What's he doing? thought he'd get away with it or it didn't occur to him because he just can't think more than like five minutes ahead of what he wants. And so he just... Or he didn't care. Yeah, yeah. Or he doesn't care. Because um, like I was saying, I, I buy it when he's talking to her. You're like, yeah, he really misses her. He really wants her to come. He really wants her to be there. You know, why he makes every other choice he makes um, is beyond me. But yeah, that's that's a pretty pretty big mistake um and it's right after this too when he has another vision of claudia so he still has the sort of 
you know, perfect woman is like still haunting him despite the fact that he did also just talk to his wife and have his wife come. I know. There's After he has his mistress, right? he calls his wife. Then he has to fantasize about the perfect woman. Right. Exactly. <laughs> He's got a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then right from this, of course, is then when he hears from uh, Carla, and she is quite sick. Um, <laughs> she has fallen quite ill at the hotel. And doesn't she say something about how, like, this just happened or something? Like, yeah. I don't know if She we... says, I regularly have sudden high fevers. Yeah, and so I don't know if we know what her condition might be, but it seems pretty bad. It's not good. Uh, she says yeah. she has a. They say she has a fever of 104 degrees, which uh, is quite high. Right. Like that's that is go. That's approaching to, hospitalization yeah. with our modern medicine yeah, today. That's, that's, go to the doctor now. Hi. Yeah, but yeah. It, it happens often enough that she's like, "Oh, my husband's used to it," and yet Guido has no idea that it's even a thing. Like she's never talked about. Like how, he doesn't know her at all. Clearly, it's been. It's been, and they've been, like, she's been his mistress for years, right? Years. Years, because later on when Luis is confronting him about her and he's like, oh, that ended years ago. Mm-hmm. And so at this point. So it had to start it before had to start years ago. before, yeah, that. Oh, um, my gosh. Yeah, so that's actually a really great point that he's, you know, apparently this happens all the time. Her husband is used to it and knows how to deal with it. And somehow this is news to Guido, despite this being his long-term mistress <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah so i thought that was and i i thought she was at least sympathetically portrayed there <laughs> you know it's it's sort of i don't know if we're supposed to be feeling sympathetic for her or if it is just a tool to sort of show his blase attitude and that you know he's not a good person who doesn't care about her but i almost felt like it was representing her as a sort of weak character almost mm. Yeah, but I don't know. I I just thought it was ridiculous, no matter what it was representing. Yeah. Um, and then speaking of the women, because it kind of does just jump from one interaction with a woman to the next. <laughs> um, not long after this is when he has his memory of Saragina of the prostitute. He goes to talk to the one of the cardinals or the priest guys because he needs their cooperation in the film mm-hmm. and, honestly, I and he goes to like a bathhouse with them right mm-hmm. yes which um, is so coolly filmed yes, with like that the scene little windows amazing. opening and stuff yeah wow i really liked that stuff that was in like the bath scene um i thought that was really well shot and interesting i didn't understand a ton of what exactly he needed from <laughs> the church their their like the cooperation i think he wanted I feel like there's, he had a scene in the film involving a priest and he was trying to get them to like okay it or something like that. Um, but it's during this sequence when he's talking to the old Catholic church men that he, you know, is distracted by a woman and it sort of sends him back into this flashback to the Saragina sequence, which I think is really visually striking. Um, it's a cool sequence. It's a really cool sequence. Uh, with the dancing and on the the beach and all the little boys, I <laughs> was mildly distracted by the fact that one of the little boys, and I think it might be little Guido, is wearing like the funniest little cape and hat <laughs> in this scene, and I don't know why. <laughs> I think that is little Guido because 
he's wearing the same thing in the flashback with his dad, or I think he puts it on. Right. So yeah. my guess was that that is that is the little Guido. But yeah, I that is I really Guido, do right? love this flashback sequence. It's it's a really crazy <laughs> sequence of just like it's so th- crazy. this prostitute who's just doing a rumba for for the boys who are like Mm -hmm. cheering her on and at one point saragina do the rumba (laughs) at one point one of the kids is slapping himself in the face in beat to the music (laughs) which is just like the funniest visual um but then he then he gets caught and i do think like the the like subconscious stuff of this movie is what I think is the most interesting, especially the, the sexual dynamics of this character are the things that I kind of grasp onto the most. And he gets caught and then punished in like the most humiliating way. And I feel like that's, that's mm-hmm. kind of a like direct tie to how dysfunctional sexual life is as an adult, where he has these relationships that are completely empty mm-hmm. because yeah, on some level, he's associating sex and sexual curiosity with being punished. Right. I mean, and that's a whole, like, church thing, Catholic mm-hmm. thing. You know, you see that in a lot of uh, works of fiction where people <laughs> have these sort of, like, traumatic religious upbringings that then uh, give them a lot of issues in their adult relationships going I, on. Yeah, Scorsese built a career out of that. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, uh, the, like the Catholic guilt and it sort of turning you inside out is is pretty key to that. Um, yeah, I, I really like that sequence too. I thought, like, like I say, visually it was striking. I like this, like Sarah, the way Saragina looks. It's very um, Saragina's dope. Yeah, she looks really cool. <laughs> She's like having a good time. I mean, you can tell like this is a woman who has a tough life. Does not you know have the the best lot in life, but that dance i i dug it i thought that was that was probably one of my favorite other than the ending one of my favorite parts of the movie uh-huh. for sure. and she i don't know Sergina's motives <laughs> but she does seem to kind of care about the kids almost yeah. like she's i think she sees them more in a realistic way than like the actual people that run a child's uh church school would right. which is they're curious, they're dumb, and they're fun and stuff. Right, it's harmless. She sees them all, yeah. Yeah, like, they, she sees them in the way that, like, um, uh, Jean-Pierre Lyod sure. <laughs> probably wanted, wanted to be seen as a child right. growing up. Yeah, exactly. Which is, they're just mischievous. They're not doing anything wrong, right. but, and it, it's just interesting. I, I, I like Sergina a lot. But she's the devil, according to the Catholic Church. Well, mm-hmm. yes, of course. Cool. She's a, a wanton woman, and you can't have that. <laughs> and so, again, with the uh, sort of swinging wildly from one side of the spectrum to the other, it's then, you know, after he has that memory, and then it's the next day, I think, when Louisa and her entourage show up. Um, and it was kind of funny because when he talked to her on the phone and she said she was spending time with friends and he was like, bring any, you know, bring anybody. And then she does basically show up with like a little mini entourage in tow, including her like very cool, stylish friend who I dig. Um, and so we get to see them interacting and they seem, you know, happy enough. You can tell Louisa's pretty wary, um, you know, of <laughs> him uh, pretty much from minute one. And the you know friends are skeptical as well. 
but you get to see them have, you know, seem kind of happy. He's so happy that she's there, and he like puts his arm around her, and it, it seems kind of nice, at least for a minute before it's all going to go wrong again. Yeah, they seem very normal mm-hmm. for the first, like, scene yeah. that they're together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this is normal wife coming to visit her husband. It's also right around then when they start talking about going to visit the set. Um, and I wasn't sure if I hadn't been paying attention and missed something. But when they start mentioning going to visit the set for like the rocket launch, like I had not picked up on anything that this movie was supposed to be like a science fiction movie with a rocket in it. So when they're like, oh, let's go see the rocket launch side, I was like, what? I thought he was just making like a regular old movie. That was news to me. <laughs> It's supposed to be like we're supposed to think that this movie's going to be terrible, right? Right, I think so. Yes. Yeah, it's all he doesn't know what he's doing. It's all over the place, especially with like Italian cinema at the time, where you have movies like Fellini's other stuff and Bicycle Thieves. It seems like really out of touch with kind of what was in vogue at that time. So it feels like so gauche and way over the top for for what was liked back then so i feel like even now like we're looking at it and we're like that seems ridiculous but i'm sure back then it, it was even more so like what do you what is this guy doing like why is he doing a big movie with a rocket ship and they build i think it like the right. one um visual image i love is they build this giant like tower thing that's supposed to house the rocket which i love the i love the look of oh, that yeah. building and the way like the lights shine through it Oh, it looks so, so cool. cool. Yeah. But then they have this little tiny, like, three-foot rocket that they're just going to superimpose over this gigantic thing, which it's, yeah. it just seems so ludicrous. I mean, I know that's how, right. how people do, like, matte paintings and mm-hmm. things like that, but just seeing seeing the two, um, like, one in front of the other is so funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it ties back in with what we were saying about how you know, Fellini was making a comedy, like that was his goal, and the meta-ness, like I totally think we're supposed to know that this is ridiculous and it's going to look bad. <laughs> Not like he's going to mm-hmm. make some great-looking film, but that it's going to be mm-hmm. just a mess. Um, but I agree, I love the design of that set and sort of, yeah, the big sort of scaffolding-type construction they've made that's going to be the launch center. Well, that was really cool. I feel like the documentary of making the first Star Wars movie is basically just eight and a half <laughs> in a way. Sure. Just like building a bunch of stuff and trying to figure it out as you go along. All the actors and producers are like, this is the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. We're taking our careers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's still too, when, when Louisa gets there with her friends and everything and they're talking about the set, um, you know, it's continuing to be as meta as ever, where he makes more comments about how he doesn't know what he's doing and the movie means nothing. And I didn't write down the actual line I wish I had, but he does have some line about how, like, basically it's meaningless or he knows the movie means nothing. Um, and it has that similar meta narrative that it did at the beginning, too. It's in that scene also that... Um... <laughs> Louisa is talking with some guy. I think I think his name is Enrico. Mm. And Guido is talking to Rosella, the friend, and he's almost like wanting her to be cheating on him just so that he can assuage mm-hmm. his guilt. Yeah. Uh, but Louisa, I th- I think is a better person than that, and it's just mm-hmm. a friend yeah. of hers. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. But I think that's an interesting like character touch for for Guido to. Be, like that's how much of 
a dick this guy is. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Because then if he could sort of place some blame on her, then he could live with himself mm-hmm. a little bit easier. It's just so horrible. Yeah. Well, and then it's the very next morning when they go and they're having this nice breakfast and Carla comes rolling up. And they don't really... I mean, we just know that Luisa like basically recognizes her and knows who she is immediately, and that's when he has the line and says, "Oh no, uh, this is a coincidence. That's been over for years." Um, but that means that she had known about. So, as bad of an idea as it was to invite your wife when your mistress is already in town, like apparently they'd been caught before, or she had known about this literal mistress before, and he still thought he could pull this off somehow, or. <laughs> And they don't seem, like, unacquainted either. Right. Like, and mm-hmm. they're actually, and this is something I kind of like, is they're not, like, really catty no. or mean to each other. Like, Lu- Luisa just literally goes up to Carla and is like, oh, you're singing really great. And Carla's like, thank you. And it's like... <laughs> and it's not even that fake. I mean, it's a little bit performative, but you're right. It's not, oh, yeah, but it's like, not catty it's, or bitchy. It's just, you know, kind of like, well, yeah, well, hello, how's it going? And it's Here not like... And it's not like Luisa just only knew her, like, hey, that was the person that came out of the house that one time when you were sleeping with someone. They have, like, some sort of, like, past... They know each other. They've talked before, clearly. (laughs) Well, don't they... Isn't there a line that Luisa says where she says, like, I'm I'm finally getting to meet you or something to that effect? Yeah, something... I I can't remember exactly what it was either, so I wasn't sure exactly the nature of their relationship with yeah. one another but they they were perfectly aware of who each other were yeah yeah they know who each other are i i love when carla walks into that scene <sighs> though because she walks into this big like patio mm-hmm. and, and it's only the four of them right <laughs> exactly. she tries to play it cool and she like she just can't but it's so funny the way she attempts to and there's one shot of Guido, like, literally, like, holding up a newspaper or, like, trying to, like, hide it. It's like, where <laughs> yeah. do you think, how do you think this is going to work? Like, it's not a crowded marketplace. <laughs> there's nobody else there. You can't just, like, put your hand up and think she's not going to see you. Oh, and then the wife's like, how could you, like, have her here? And the Guido's response is something like, oh, everyone comes here. And there's no one there. <laughs> right. There's this big empty space. That was yeah. probably the funniest scene in the movie, honestly. That was yeah. really, really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. And then, so obviously Lisa is uh, incredibly unhappy. And Guido has reached the end of his rope with all these terrible women who are ruining his life. Uh, and it goes straight into the... Uh, famous harem fantasy sequence from uh, here. <laughs> That's your... I almost turned it off. <laughs> I, I sort of luckily, when I'd been doing some research about the movie, had sort of had seen that this was in it, so I was prepared. Otherwise, I would have been quite taken aback if I hadn't known this was coming. So I'll, I'll, You're be, the defender? I'll be the center here. And I, I think... I think this scene is hilarious because it, it it's starts not, it starts funny, but I I don't think it it the scene itself is not sexist. It's a dive into the psyche of a man who's incredibly sexist. So mm-hmm. it's it's poking yeah, fun that's at, true. At, at how at how just like abhorrent um, 
Guido's view of women is where he's like he's whipping them and I think there's like growling sounds of lions and he's banished one of the women who's over 26 I think yeah has to to go upstairs yep is this just what Leo DiCaprio yes is this what Leo DiCaprio's life is this is actual life yes That's that's like twenty three. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> but so so de- basically, depiction does not equal endorsement, is what you're saying. This is not this is not Fellini saying this is how things yeah, are. This yeah. is just a window into Guido's mind. That that makes sense. The one part of the whole thing that broke it for me was when they brought him a present, which was a black girl from oh, Hawaii yeah, to dance funny. in an exotic suggestion. Yeah. At that point, that that's the thing in the scene that I was like, no. Yeah. That's so bad. I do have in my notes that is of the three movies we've watched so far for this, uh, I believe that is our first person of color. Um, uh, not yeah. portrayed in the best way and maybe yeah. not the worst way, but it's yeah. but it's almost the worst way. It's not good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, um, you know, yeah, movie's almost 60 years old, right? Like, gonna, gonna encounter some of these things, unfortunately. I'm sure we're going to see yeah. worse than that at some point, but this is not a great uh, introduction to, to non-white <laughs> no. people. No. Going back to something that came up in 400 Blows, does this scene constitute a Christmas movie? I, I know where <laughs> you're going. Thank you. <laughs> so he does bring them gifts, and it is snowing, but they don't ever explicitly say it's Christmas. So I'm okay. going to vote no, but it's right. close. It is I think close. It's, about it's as close very as close. Get. Yeah. I think you need to say Christmas yeah, for it to be Christmas. Or have a tree or something that, yeah. Yes. Okay, good. But it's, I'm glad we settled that. Yeah, but it, no, it was close, yeah. Because especially the way he's handing out the presents, it's very Santa Claus-like. Um, oh, my The gosh. way he's giving those. Mm. Um, yeah. No, it, it is. I agree. It was, a, it was a funny scene. And I'm kind of with you, Dylan, where I was like having a good laugh. And then as soon as that part happened, I just went, oh, no. Don't <laughs> like do this. Yeah, don't, don't. Bring Especially because that person had no context of like a person he was in love with, right. maybe. Well, not- And maybe he had just mm-hmm. personally fetishized as right. something exotic and yeah. disgusting. No, it was just it wasn't like made he'd up. He'd in that. seen someone in the hotel earlier or something, and he yeah. was now bringing that in. Um, I know I similarly got myself distracted, then wondering about the like the old showgirl. I'm like, am I supposed to know who this is? Is this just like a pa- like the one who shows up and then causes all the problems? I'm like, is this just a a real past mm-hmm. conquest of his, or just a representation? I wasn't entirely sure. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I didn't I didn't know who she mm-hmm. was either. Uh, apparently. He, uh, he, he being Fellini, treated that actress quite poorly in real cool. life. Cool. Um, like, while while they were shooting that scene. So, Shocking. Like, I, I do think that Fellini knows what he's doing in terms of uh, the film for the most part, like, in this scene. But uh, he was cle- clearly not a perfect person. Um, mm. one, other, one other touch to this scene that I do like is that he brings the Wagner back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I, I think is a nice yeah. touch. Yeah. And gi- and given what Wagner was, <laughs> it works. Still, mm-hmm. yeah, still on theme. Dick. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then after that, it is the test uh, footage screening, I think, is pretty much the next sequence where everyone gets together in the, like, screening room to watch the test footage of the different um, actor actresses who are going to be <laughs> in the movie or who they're considering casting in. Um, the movie and 
poor Louisa has to sit there and watch the actress who's playing the wife role who um you know, it wasn't actually as bad as I was worried that that might go. Like, she wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't as, like, horrible as a portrayal. I was prepared for it to be, like, really bad, but it just was not as, it was just unflattering in a way that Louisa was not on board with. Yeah, but also, she, Louisa just also seemed so uncaring about anything that was going on. Yeah. Like, she was like, this is so stupid and <laughs> shitty. Like, I almost can't even care. Right. I mean, she's probably real mad at herself for co- coming out there. Like, I would oh, be, right? Yeah. Like, why did I... D- I came all the way out here for mm-hmm. this to happen. Get it with Enrico, Luisa. Yeah. We'll treat you better. <laughs> yeah, she would be better off. Um, but then this is also when, finally, the mysterious Claudia shows up, like, for real, to uh, grace us all with her presence. Um, and I kind I pretty much saw this coming, but I like, you know, the reveal that she shows up and, you know, she's beautiful and she's just as sort of, you know, beautiful and everything as he'd imagined, but she's still just a person. <laughs> like she's still just another woman who's in the real world and, you know, no real world person is ever going to be as perfect as this like beautiful silent fantasy that guido has in his head yeah and she's like dressed completely mm-hmm. different like in, in in his when he envisions her she's all white and she shows up this and she, i think she's dressed in all black or almost all yeah, black i think so yeah there's there's one bit just uh i feel the need to mention this um at the screen test there's like just a throwaway joke where the writer guy the, or the the critic guy is still mm-hmm. complaining mm-hmm. and guido just points up and he, he has <laughs> the man hanged yeah. Like in his imagination. <laughs> yes, he's I thought imagining. Yeah. It, it, it reminds me of um, the Marshall McLuhan scene in Annie Hall when mm. they're like waiting in line and he's he just pulls Marshall McLuhan out of nowhere to, to correct this guy who's oh. bothering him. Yeah. It feels like musicians on Twitter putting critics on blast <laughs> because, quote unquote, they've never made an album. Sure, yes. It, it feels like that level of yeah. pettiness. Yeah. Of just hanging a critic mid-movie I, that had complained all the complaints I have about this movie already. I will say, to bring back the comparison... I would pr- I would frankly prefer if in something like Birdman he just did that. It's like just be straight up with it. Like just say fine. You just want to just mm-hmm. hang the cr- the person who's criticizing you. <laughs> like don't even be shy about it. And that's why this one works for me because it goes so far that it's it's reached the point of absurd. Mm-hmm. Where all right, we're just gonna have this person killed. <laughs> right. I, exactly. I don't know. I got a kick out of it. <laughs> yeah. No. I I did too. I personally there's virtually nothing I dislike more than imagery of people hanging like it really freaks me out and so mm-hmm. I was not psyched to have that kind of jump mm-hmm. out of nowhere and be like oh my god I, I will <laughs> look away from the screen when someone's hanging um uh spoiler alert for a 2019 movie coming up but when that happened in Jojo Rabbit I was so freaking furious <laughs> in that movie <laughs> when there's like the big emotional reveal is of like feet of a person hanging is like no no thank you you've lost me altogether um but i didn't mind it here because it was being played as a joke but i still was mildly resentful that it snuck up on me and scared the crap out of me um (laughs) but it was it was funny um yeah and so then he you know meets claudia and talks to her and you know it's just like everything else in his life seems pretty 
disappointed by how things have turned out for him. Mm -hmm. And this is like maybe the most meta part. And in the review you are quoting that I wrote, Nick, it like this is the part where I think Claudia's or the way Claudia interacts with him, he becomes almost confrontational about how sort of shitty he is and how empty he is. Um, and again, this never gets me to care about him, but at least just like latch on to some of the themes a little bit more. Like, it, it, And that's probably the scene in the movie that it's not my favorite scene, but maybe the th- part that helps me enjoy or think positively about the movie the most mm-hmm. if that makes sense you're talking about when they go like on the car ride and stop by the set yeah 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 i'm there's the the one line that she repeats i think she says it three times which kind of does sum up the character of guido she says because he doesn't know how to love and he mm-hmm. c- tries to refute her and yes. she keeps saying it i think that's a good summation of who guido is yeah and I, and, and that's when like well, for one, it really had to spell its themes out a lot in the movie, but it it, it at least helped mm-hmm. me at least understand and reiterate that Fellini had more than just kind of the really base and gross imagery and stuff that was shown in the movie, that he had at least some contextual understanding. So yeah. it helped, even though it was spelling its message out way hard. <laughs> Well, and I like in that final sequence, too, that, you know, he actually has, you know, one last vision of the perfect Claudia, like, even while the real one is there. Because it just kind of, yeah. it, you know, like you said, it's it's not subtle, but it is, you know, kind of like this last image of, well, <laughs> you know, you have the real thing right next to you and just nothing's ever going to, you know, be, live up to this vision that you had. And maybe it's time for him to make peace with that (laughs) whether or not he does you know hard to say Mm -hmm. Um, but I did like that after that is this the big final sequence where they all go to have I don't know the traditional start of filming press conference that you have (laughs) when you start making a movie and you have a big press conference on your set and everybody shows up and you have to field a barrage of questions from people about the movie you're making um i was Feels like it's in the nba almost right i was kind of confused i was like huh i wonder if, i mean is this something fellini had to do <laughs> like is this how they had big press conferences to kick off their uh movies but it i i did like i yeah yeah before right. you start Ex- shooting. <laughs> exactly it's not the premiere or anything like that um it's just you know you have to give a big speech and be interviewed and um but i liked this sequence just because it's back at the very visually interesting location and pretty much everything shot there looks really cool. Um, And Mm. it, again, sort of does the back and forth between the real world and his fantasy. Like when he, you know, escapes from just this barrage of attention by crawling under the table and shooting himself. (laughs) Um, Now, he dies, right? No, he does not die. That's just what he wants, like, wishes he could be doing, is what I thought. Hmm. Uh, The way I read it was, that is actually what he did, is he went under the table and he shot himself. And then the ending is And then everything after that was like a fever dream, like... (laughs) As he shoots and himself or about to shoot Yeah, I thought yeah. that was just like the sort of vision of the guy hanging where it's like, well, this is what he wants to do and then doesn't. So, because then otherwise it, the movie just ends with a press conference that's going on and that is it. 
and that's just the most random i don't know oh that press conference is weird <laughs> i feel like alan iverson just needs to show up and just be like we're talking yeah, about so, practice <laughs> so, so the first time i watched this movie i had the same reaction where i i mean i saw it when i was 18 or whatever mm-hmm. and I think I, I read it as he kills himself and everything after that is like this occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, like you were saying, type hallucination where he he envisions the, all this stuff that's better for him. Uh, but watching it this time, I, I kind of had your read, Jana, where I think he his suicide, like he's at a press conference and he's feeling miserable and he just kind of thinks like, well, what if I just kill? Like, what if I happen to have a gun in my pocket and I could just... Right. crawl under the table and kill myself because what it jumps to after that like right before the very final like mm-hmm. circus type scene mm-hmm. is them at the set walking around and going well you know shut it down word on here right. so you get the feeling that his you know supposed suicide as we see it is more him imagining it but also there's like a metaphorical element where him wanting to do that is lining up with you know him just bailing on the the whole thing okay entirely. so, so we, we, we jump forward to yeah them being like all right yeah like we finished it like we're not doing this anymore he can't handle it gotcha mm-hmm. that that makes a lot of sense but that's just so many back and forth like in quick succession yeah. then from dream to reality and then, then back um, to a fantasy sequence for the very end with our big circus uh Parade. Yeah, but then here's the thing that comes back to me. Because even on movies that maybe I don't love as much as you two, like Mulholland Drive or something mm-hmm. that is very abstract and like, what does it mean? I don't care in this one. Like, I don't care if he dies. I don't care if he, they just shut down the production. I do not care one way or another what part of that was dream or reality. Unlike Mulholland Drive, where like, I really do care about the characters mm-hmm. and what the reality of the situation was and what the dream Mm -hmm. part is. I just like, and that's the biggest problem with the movie for me is like, I just eh, could be either one. Sure. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's fair. Honestly, he just, like you said, it doesn't really matter uh, whether he lives or dies (laughs) because you just don't really care about him that much. And like I was saying, I, I spent the movie sort of trying to figure out if I was supposed to be rooting for him to successfully make this movie. But then it seems like, if you take the end at more or less face value then like the victory at the end of the movie is that he's not going to, that he's not going to make this movie that he knows is going to be bad. Mm-hmm. And that sort of is the happy ending. Um, that he never cared about. Yeah, exactly. So he's point. not going to fake it anymore. Uh, but I do like the final, the final fantasy sequence, which is maybe the only really joyous like sequence in the film. Um, a close with the Two Sarah thumbs K up for that too. scene. Yeah, I loved it. Um, and this is like this is the first Fellini film I've seen before, so um, I did. I mean, other than being familiar with the concept of things being like Fellini esque, um, you know, with like clowns and sort of all that imagery, um, I didn't know. Apparently, circuses and parades are like a big deal for him. Um, but I loved it. I loved the whole final sequence, and they're all skipping and going in a circle, and the little you know clowns are leading the parade. I thought it was great. Uh, I just loved. It, it made me higher on the movie overall um like i talk about this all the time but a really good ending can really like kick up (laughs) my enjoyment of the rest of the movie if it ends on a really high note like that yeah i was gonna rate this three and a half on letterboxd until the whole ending sequence right then with the 
the give it a full circus half and the fray. And I was like, yeah, I'll give it four. <laughs> it's very on that border, though. Uh, that that whole end sequence to me, it just reminded me of a fever dream. It's like, it's the end of a wonderful life if George Bailey was a cheating prick that didn't care about his wife or family, and it was just a fever dream of a sexually omnipresent man. See, I, I like part of, um, at the end, well, one thing that we haven't talked about is the oh, score, yeah. especially at the end, mm. the score I'll... to that um, last moment by Nina Rota, who did the Godfather oh, score also. okay. It sounded very Godfathery, and I wasn't sure if that was just because it was, yeah. like, Italian. Italian. <laughs> so I thought that makes sense. I didn't I didn't put <laughs> yeah. that together, but that makes sense. I love the theme, like, the, the that plays at the end of what I think yeah. of as being the theme. Um, I thought was great, and it, it it's overshadowed in other parts by the use of the Wagner and some of the other classical music, but it really uh, shines at the end there. I do like the message of what that end scene is kind of going for. I think even Carla says to him something along the lines of you you can't do this without us um, mm-hmm. or something to that effect where it's a guy who's been I mean he's sort of like on an island by himself. He, he has all these people around him but he's clearly not connecting with anyone and it's supposed to be him like bringing in everyone into this like literal circle uh, of his but I love the visuals. I love I love the sound. It, it looks beautiful. I don't quite buy the character development, like getting there. Like, how does he go from, you know, imagining killing him? Yeah, imagining killing himself to now he needs to rely on everybody. And did we ever see him actually get benefit from relying about anyone in that movie? No. Yeah. So that's. I mean, it, it left me a little bit cold. Yeah, the only thing we see, and we didn't talk about this at all, it's like a really small part of the narrative, but there's one of his collaborators who's like maybe the set designer, like an old guy who they have a very yeah. contemptuous relationship who, you know, he, he's they're fighting and I think Guido, you know, fires him and at one point, but then they, they reconcile. I think like, that's the only one like like little narrative thread where you feel like, okay, maybe he realizes he needs to treat people a little bit better. Boom. <laughs> Plotark. Who would have saw it coming? Yeah. So, yeah, that's it's eight and a half, guys. Uh, you know, I'm very, very glad to have seen it. Um, I think it's interesting. It's always hard with a lot of these movies for me that I'm coming into watching the first time, having heard for so long, like, this, you know, this is it. This is one of the greatest films of all time. It's really hard. I don't think it's necessarily fair to the film uh, to come in with that sort of expectation. Uh, but I liked it. Not my favorite of the ones we've seen so far, but... I'm very mm. glad we saw it. Um, you have a very interesting quote on the document here, oh. Jenna. About <laughs> uh, uh, you should talk about that. Uh, which one? My uh, my Pauline the Kale, Kale corner. corner. Yeah. So I, one thing I've noticed while I've been doing research for these episodes is so far almost every single movie. Uh, Maybe not 400 Blows. It was just 2001 in this. But when you like look up, you know, the Wikipedia page or the Ebert review, there's always so far a descending Pauline Kael uh, review, which is great. And so I want to try to keep checking for each movie to see mm-hmm. what uh, potentially contrarian opinion uh, she had. But the Wikipedia page actually only cites um, three reviews, negative reviews of the film. Um, it says the acclaim was unanimous with the exception of reviews by Judith Christ, Pauline Kael, and John Simon. Christ didn't think the film touched the heart or moved the spirit. Kael mm-hmm. derided the film as a structural disaster, 
while uh-huh. while Simon considered it a disheartening fiasco. <laughs> Perfect. So you know, really just hit the trifecta there. Um, well, I don't think I'm going to give it a negative review. I think they all hit the nail right on. I, I think the only one of those criticisms I agree with is that doesn't touch the heart or move the spirit necessarily. I don't know that I'd call it a disheartening fiasco. I, I think that's yeah, a wild thing too. to say. Um, I think and both I don't think are... it's a structural disaster. No, I, I don't think so no, either. But I think it's close to a structural disaster than something Ebert wrote, which he said it was the most tightly constructed film Fellini ever made. Oh, yeah, that's a weird I was like, bro, <laughs> no, um, far from the truth. I also found a... Um, write-up of this Ebert must have reviewed this movie multiple times <laughs> but um I found a uh, review or a write-up of it from 1993 because uh, I guess the film was back in theaters for what at the time would have been the 30th anniversary and I think Fellini had just gotten a lifetime achievement award at the Oscars and so sort of there was uh, eight and a half was back in the air it's very weird um, not to get too time obsessed, but to think about, wow, in 1993, which to me does not feel like that long ago, this movie was only 30 years old. And now we're like just about 30 years beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will drive myself crazy if I spend <laughs> From the, too much yeah. time thinking about, wait spinning. a minute. Like, <laughs> um, but it's, it's interesting. He talks about trying to get people to go see it in theaters, saying it is out on video, um, but it's so big and rich that you need to see it on the big screen <laughs> for a 30th anniversary revival. Um, and there was one, he does call it um, the definitive film about director's block. Um, and there was one more, he does call the harem scene one of the most famous sequences in all of modern films. Um Hmm. Which is like, okay, sure. Oh, um, these. this is the final paragraph of the essay. Here it is. These days, directors don't worry about how to repeat their last hit because they know exactly how to do it. Remake the same commercial formulas. A movie like this is like a splash of cold water in the face, a reminder that the movies really can shake us up if they want to. Ironic that Fellini's film is about artistic bankruptcy and seems richer in invention than almost anything else around. So Ebert was very high on this movie pretty much every time he <laughs> wrote about it. Uh, honestly, we're, so he, he mentions like the directors like ripping themselves off. Mm-hmm. This, it's not exactly, but it feels like a ripoff of La Dolce Vita, almost. Of just kind of a wandering aimless man in vulgarity and garishness and... Yeah. personal crisis like i don't know yeah a lot of this stuff a lot of ebert's quotes in here i i do not agree with at all <laughs> even if i even if i enjoy the movie on the whole um but my my biggest bone of contention is he says eight and a half is the best film ever about filmmaking no where do you think's the best one that was the quote that i uh, highlight too yeah uh nick do we agree on the best film about filmmaking Right, I don't know what are, what are you going with. It's a moment of innocence. Oh, ooh, yeah, I I didn't even have that one written down, but uh, yeah, you're probably right. That's probably I, on the, the book. Best, I just said um, no. Talk to the Iranians <laughs> because of close up and a moment of innocence. Mm, sure, mm-hmm. it's right there. They, that's like the two best, and it's by like two um, 1990s Iranian film directors, and it's like their best movies. And he's claiming eight and a half's the best. No, no, but that's just my opinion. 
Yeah, I wonder if part of it was that eight and a half kind of like formed the mold for a lot of movies that would come after it, especially stuff that was a little bit more um, hallucinatory, which I guess a moment of innocence isn't, but it does have a lot of meta elements and so does close up. But then you have stuff like Synecdoche, New York, or um, all that jazz where you, you're not really quite sure what's real and what isn't. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, I think all of those movies are very indebted to eight and a half. So it is historically important. I just think that it's been done a little bit better by a lot of people just because uh, I, I like the way that they drew characters better. Uh, like Pain and Glory, I, I think like that, yeah. that movie had stuff that like r- really moved me. Whereas this movie, I often think like, oh, great shot or oh, cool scene or I love the way he did this, but I was never like touched by it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. with this movie, this movie's this is very like, pain and glorious. Yeah, yeah, which I, I think I like pain and glory better just because it moved mm-hmm. me so much. This, I agree. this movie's yeah. more interesting because it's it's sort of about the make. It's not just about filmmaking; it's about the making of itself, which is pretty cool. And I think that's you know intellectually stimulating. But go talk to never... Motion Makbalov and Avas Kirstami <laughs> though. Yeah. It, like it never made me care what happens to Guido, to right. be honest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I want. I was going to bring up Pain and Glory a couple times too, because I think Pain and Glory. I mean, I assume it's consciously indebted to Eight and a Half. Like I remember seeing it discussed in a lot of the reviews mm-hmm. when it was coming out, um, and especially with some of the structure with um, like flashing back to his childhood as a young boy and everything. Like there's just a lot of it that sexual awakening, sexual awakening exactly with like sort of a working person in the, you know, town where he was growing up. Um, Yeah. I, I love pain and glory. And that is an example of how you can show you can become emotionally invested. Even if your main character, you know, makes some really bad decisions, (laughs) you can still, be rooting for them and be emotionally invested in their story Um, yeah but i i think also the thing that eight and a half is missing that pain and glory had was a genuine personal moment of real reflection and progression Mm -hmm. like when his old lover in uh pain and glory comes back and they just yeah that i I was not a fan of pain and glory until that scene and that's a scene that kind of made the movie better for me because i was almost stuck in an eight and a half rut in that movie mm-hmm. um but yeah that scene and then the way it kind of resolves with the blending of it yeah um, i was gonna say yeah speaking of good endings that pain and glory has an amazing woo! ending um that really worked for me also i was gonna do a whole bit and say my favorite movie about movie making is the artist but i wasn't prepared to commit to doing that with uh. a straight face so <laughs> You could just say the the original the artist, which is singing in the I was rain. Singing in the rain is act my actual answer. <laughs> Good, that's a great choice. Yeah. Um, shout out to the player also if you want to watch a really cynical movie, uh, cynical movie about movie mm-hmm. making and how corrupt and awful it is with no artistic, uh, really integrity at all. Um, you don't, you don't have to watch the player. Yes, watch the player. It's great. Um, but singing in the rain is my is my real answer um, for that. Good choice. Nick, did you have a specific choice yet? Did you mention one? If you were picking just one? Um, I'd probably go Singing in the Rain too. although, like, to what extent is it, like, it's about movie making, but in a much different way than this is. Yeah. It's about, like, um, cultural It's more of the acting. This is, this is more about, like, yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess it depends on like what sort of movie about movie making we're gonna actually like go into. Because this is this feels more in the vein of like Pain and Glory or Synecdoche, New York, where it's all about the dread and the pain and the self sacrifice. Whereas mm-hmm. Singing in the Rain, it's just an utter joy. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. So if we're using like the broader definition of anything about the craft of movie making, it's definitely gonna be Singing in the Rain. But otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're talking about like the struggle and things like that, uh, I would probably go with a moment of innocence or I, I love all that jazz. I think all that jazz is fantastic. Roy Schneider is fantastic. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I had on here that I was going to talk about nine. I don't need to waste anyone's time talking about nine, the movie musical guys don't <laughs> see it. It's really bad. I found the one thing Daniel Day Lewis cannot do. And it is uh, convincingly portray. The singing Italian film director in a musical. Um, Fergie from the Black Eyed Peas plays Sarah Gina. And uh, just you can imagine what that's like. Um, It actually has kind of a fun, another fun high energy ending also. Um, And like I said. Do you guys remember, though, when that was supposed to be the big Oscar? Oh, yeah movie of the year mm-hmm. everyone predicted that in the yeah. top of the list well, the whole movie also is rob marshall just fully ripping himself off from chicago like it has it does the same convention like in chicago where things are happening in the real world and then the musical sequences are fantasies and he does the exact same thing here where when it's the musical sequence it goes on stage and then it's like a big flashy stage bound performance and then the rest of the plot happens in the real world like Buddy, okay, you got Fellini one trick. feels like a more of a work of <laughs> s- subtlety now. Yes, yeah. Yeah, he has, <laughs> has one trick. Um, but do check it out for Judy Dench in a terrible uh, brown bob wig just doing a patrician British accent and not caring <laughs> that everybody else is trying Who to Who does she Italian. play? She plays the costume designer for the movie. Um, oh, you know, okay. she's just kind of like a random old lady character. Um and she is there to like give him advice yeah because i was curious too i was like oh i wonder who she plays i'm like oh no an invented role just some character they invented gotcha yeah, yeah. um yeah it's bad we're making a movie about a musical yeah gotta exactly exactly gotta get her in there <laughs> gotta have her um just be completely embarrassing um yeah so don't see nine okay <laughs> on that note i think we've reached um our our rating and and thumbs up thumbs down Where, where'd you fall dylan thumbs up i'll go up yeah i'm a thumbs not up. enthusiastically like the last two but yeah yeah i'm definitely a thumbs up like i mean I, I i have my my quibbles and concerns but i would never say thumbs down it's an excellent movie yeah yeah i'm, I'm definitely going thumbs up as well and i like it more than i feel like i came off as me too honestly uh, yeah you know we were we were hard we were hard on things but I still think it's a really I know. This movie. is definitely the hardest we've been so far on a movie. And it's just because there's a lot to pick through. Like, there's yeah. a lot to dig mm-hmm. into and, and sort of question. So that's fun. But no, I still, still thumbs up from me. And then as far as rating out of four stars, I am going to do three out of four uh, stars on this one. Um, I'm still calibrating my four star <laughs> uh, rating <laughs> scale. So I'd probably be between a three and a three and a half. Um but I'm going to do three stars for me. Dylan? Mm. Three. I'm going to go three and a half because I'm kind of close between three and three and a half. But I think if you do like eight and a half divided by ten, you'd get the equivalent of three and a half out of four. <laughs> so for uh, 
symmetry sake, I'm going to go three and a half. You want to give it an eight and a half? That is fair enough. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. The meta-ness is split over to the podcast. All right. Anything else you guys wanted to add? Final thoughts or think we covered it? I think we were. It was good that we were on a little bit more of a negative week, seeing as what's coming up next week. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, thank you so much to everyone for joining us this week. Um, speaking of next week, we will be back discussing the Werner Herzog movie, Aguirre: The Wrath of God. I'm very excited to get into that one. Yes. Uh, yes. Until next. Yeah. Yes. Until next week, you can follow us. Uh, we're on both Twitter and Letterboxd at Great Movies Pod. Uh, we want to thank, as always, our friend Scott Brady for our artwork. You can follow him on Twitter at sbradyartist. And that's it for this week. Thanks, guys. Roger out. Roger, Roger out. And when I go to the movies, I am that person on the screen. I am having vicariously an experience that happened to someone else. And that makes me a better person. That to see good films and to see important films is one of the most profoundly civilized experiences that we can have as people.